Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're at Arclight in Dallas, a brand new summit to let some of the voices be heard in this industry, to bring the community together. And I am fortunate enough to be joined by three incredible individuals today. Alana Shepard, the founding principal of Intangible Light, Amy Karn, associate at HMC Architects, and Martin Van Kohlbergen, partner at KGM Architectural Lighting. They're here to talk to us about queer perspectives in lighting. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, welcome to Dallas. Welcome to Arclight. I know this is the first year that we're running this summit. What do you think of it so far? I know it just started today, but what do you think? It's going to be great. Yeah, I'm really excited. This is a really cool venue. What makes you excited about Arclight and what they're doing, how this is kind of a different way to take that conventional approach on a trade show? It's built from the ground up as a conference centered around inclusivity and diversity, for one thing. The difference in it already, it's barely even started. It's already palpable. It was put together just very thoughtfully. I think you know, being thoughtful is something that's always super important. It goes without saying the team at Arclight, when they decided to put on this event, they wanted it to intentionally be different. And they're doing just that by not only giving us an opportunity to have this conversation today, but putting you on the show floor and vocalizing that this is something that matters, that this is something that not only should be spoken about, but it should be celebrated and everybody needs to be accepting. I want to dive into more of that today, what it means to feel that way, what it means to see that from your perspective. But before we start there, Tell us all, who are you and how did you get your start in lighting? Hey, it's Alana Shepard. So I got my start in theatrical lighting. I was a theater major in college and I started on the stage. And of course, you know, for some production, they needed to do lighting and electrics. And as soon as I started doing that, I was hooked. And I became sort of the go-to lighting person from that point on in my undergrad career. I mean, there were others, of course, but it was my passion. And I really just sort of fit into that line. And I carried it through. I continued doing some local professional theatrical design. And I then moved on to grad school, went to Carnegie Mellon, got a Master of Fine Arts in Lighting Design. And then went to New York. You're a lifer for lighting. Yes. Lighting's always been in your blood. The first time you saw it, you said, this is what I want to do. Hey, Martin Van Kohlbergen here. I was a licensed architect, got my bachelor in architecture from Notre Dame and was practicing architecture for about seven years. We were actually, our firm was designing churches as well as pay less shoe sources because it was the middle of the recession and somebody had to pay the bills. I had the opportunity with my first long-term relationship, had the opportunity to move to Los Angeles. And when we moved, I said I wanted to stay in architecture, but I didn't want to be an architect because I didn't want to spend the beginning of my career doing flashing details and toilet details and all of that. It wasn't inspiring. But what I learned from doing liturgical architecture was the power of light and how it creates mood, how it creates intimacy or grandeur. And I said, this sounds like it's going to be something that's much more fulfilling in my career. So I moved to Los Angeles without any background in anything lighting. I was introduced to a firm there that knew the value of hiring an architect versus somebody who didn't have any design training whatsoever. And uh, that was about 22 years ago. And you were stuck from then on 22 years ago. Here I 
Amy. How about you, Amy? Hey guys, this is Amy. I'm actually not a lighting designer. I'm an architect. I'm a practicing architect out of Southern California. And for me, lighting and being part of this conference and, and working with lighting designers in general has always been about how to support building design and building user experience. So as a firm or as an architect, I'm constantly sort of pushing our electrical engineers and our lighting designers to look for opportunities to highlight that experience or to increase whatever effect or experience we're trying to create with the design itself of the building. And lighting is in support of that in my world. So you all have diverse backgrounds in terms of where it comes from, where you got your start in lighting, how you integrated into your professional practice every day. That word diverse has become a buzzword recently in culture, in pop culture, in the professional world, really throughout our lives, through a lot of things that have, I won't say come out of the woodwork, but have finally kind of taken more of a permanent place on the public stage. I want to talk a little bit more about what it means to be diverse. When you think about that, we could read Webster's Dictionary, but that's not as exciting as the real thoughts behind it. What does it mean to be diverse in general as a person and then also as a professional? I think calling diversity a buzzword is minimizing it a little bit. I see diversity as identifying privilege and taking steps toward mitigating the effects of that privilege in a nutshell. By that, I mean identifying the biases that exist from privilege and working against them. I see diversity as a end result of the intersection of equitable opportunities and inclusive practices. So diversity for me and in my work has been about increasing the opportunity for having more voices in the room from more different experiences. And whether that means more people of color, because the people in architecture are are predominantly white, predominantly Caucasian, and more often than not male in leadership positions, and more often further, straight men, straight white men. So for me, diversity is the net result of looking for equitable opportunities for women, people of color, queer people, anyone who does not fit that immediate assumption of who's going to be in leadership, giving them an opportunity to let their voice be heard and bring that to the table. What about you, Martin? Starting my career but back in the 90s, diversity to, to me wasn't necessarily anything that was raised. Living in New York, growing up in New Jersey, living in Los Angeles, working at a firm that was blind to who I was and the notion of what my personality brought to the table, it was acceptance. And for me, diversity is a basis of acceptance of all. It doesn't necessarily mean that I don't promote what I need to do to increase a certain attitude in the firm. It's just, you are who you are. That's what it should be. And I think that that's an interesting thing because we're all in a world right now of design where we are working side by side with people of various genders, various cultures, various races. And when we do projects with them, it's not, oh, that's the blank view or that's the the blank view. And to me, that's what diversity is. It's actually looking at something and designing a project as a team versus having a specific outlook that says, well, we have to think of blank. Mm -hmm. And that might not be the same as most other people, but that's how I grew up. You talked about how it's the ability to just have everybody's seat at the table be valued as we're all one-to-one. We're all equal. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, how you talk, how you sound, how you walk, anything. It's just, this is the team. This is the set of ideas. Alana mentioned earlier, the definition of being diverse is maybe centered around a term is bias, right? Bias is both, as we know, intentional and unintentional. There's There's a phrase that kind of leads to this, which is the unconscious bias, which, so to speak, articulates the fact that you've been raised, you've been grown up, you've been in an environment where you literally had no clue 
you were under the influence of something, but you were. Unpack that a little bit more for me. What is unconscious bias and how does that show up in all of our lives today? I see it every day in my own life and behavior because I was raised and socialized one way and I'm living another way now. I grew up as a cisgender male, but that's not who I am. I'm a trans woman. So I lived in 40 years having the privilege of a white male and now I don't. But I still have a lot of those biases that came with that. It's just easier to identify because I'm not in those shoes anymore. It takes work to unpack all of that, to see one thing and know that there's more in all aspects of your life and being able to unpack that and work against it. When you think about what you observed versus where you're at now and what you're trying to unpack, what's maybe an example or two that you see that you could share with people just to kind of help everybody relate to what happens, how that unconscious bias shows up? I think one of the things that we've all had to learn and be much more conscious of is our own self-worth. In a community where there are people who might look at us as something different, like their version of diversity is all the same. And for us, the drawback of choosing, if you will, according to them, what our lifestyle is comes with a certain amount of pressure. But I think if we sit back and we learn from who we are ourselves, that strength is what carries us into a level of looking beyond unconscious bias, if you will. If I'm if I'm strong enough in who I am and what I believe, in my mind, it doesn't matter what a person's background is. I have to look at them as an equal to me. It's not about any sort of thought process that they're a different gender, they're a different race. I have the strength in my mind to know what I've gone through, what I've been through, and everybody else has that in their own mind. So if we're, as a collective whole, a strong group, that's where I think we start to even the playing field. Do you want to add anything to that, Amy? Yeah, I think that unconscious bias is really tough because by the nature of it, you don't know what you're doing. And to Martin's point, I actually think the easiest way to stop your own unconscious bias is to let someone tell you and show you who they are and what they stand for as they feel comfortable doing so and not bringing your own assumptions about that person. If you have someone in your orbit that is a Hispanic lesbian, for an example, you might put a lot of assumptions into what that is, but that woman may have experiences that you don't know about and the assumptions you bring to that person, that's your unconscious bias. So assuming that because someone is Hispanic, they have a certain lived experience or assuming because someone is queer, they have a certain lived experience. That's actually your unconscious bias. And everyone has it. Even people who are very open-minded, very forward-looking, people who don't see themselves as carrying bias, we all have it. And that's, to me, the way to break it down. Absolutely. In interacting with queer people within and without the lighting community, I do that very thing. I make certain assumptions about people's lived experiences, and oftentimes I'm wrong. So it's just trying to take a step back and being aware of that and listening. And you know, I think it goes without saying that we're sitting here talking about unconscious bias to the point that you've all just made. We don't know it until we truly step back and listen. And listening doesn't mean just listening. It means truly putting yourself in their shoes. It means truly actually understanding what they're saying. And that is something that as a human being is so difficult because we're born with the fight or flight concept, right? We're born to protect ourselves before we protect anyone else. And creating that vulnerable and open moment is something that we as humans have to work on. This industry is predominantly white and is male dominated and is largely straight. None of you would necessarily identify with that category, which is why you're here to help lead this conversation, which I think is truly wonderful. When you look at what's going on 
on in the industry right now? What's going on in the world? How is this all affecting and descending into the AEC community? I think it depends on, again, what your upbringing was, what your background was, how long you've been in the profession. I think that in my 21 years, I have always been accepted. I have worked for uber conservative people. I've done liturgical projects where they know that I am a gay white man, but sitting at the table has not changed for me since 2000 to 2020 because I speak with my own authority in terms of what my subject is and I don't allow them to get into my head in terms of you're less than because of who you are and who you love. That for me is different than everybody else who's here and who's on this panel is the notion that I come into my job and I say, I'm a lighting designer. I happen to be gay. I have a lover. I have a partner. I have three other accepting business partners who have learned over the years what it's like to have a dialogue with somebody who might not be married with children. And yet we're all in it for the same reason. We're all in it to be a successful career person and to be profitable in that. In terms of where do we stand, how's the report card, I feel like we're getting an incomplete. So the work's not done. The jury's still out. There's been a lot of work in the last year and a half to make strides toward greater diversity and greater equity. And I see a lot of good things happening. The conversations are starting to be had. I think where the proof meets the pudding is going to be another year from now when this is not the buzzword, as you said. As I said, yeah. Yeah. Is it just ingrained in how we operate? Is there equity and diversity and just thoughtfulness being put into the IS rules and their thought toward inclusion being put into the rules and bylaws of our various organizations and things like that? Will the diversity practices that are happening right now at the organizational level, at the training, is that going to yield any tangible results? And I think to your point, there's so much that has to be done. Measuring that or finding the tangible opportunity isn't necessarily like going to be checking a box. It isn't going to be saying we did this. Maybe at best, it's going and serving everybody who feels like they aren't welcome with that seat at the table that Martin spoke about and then doing something, whatever it is, and letting all of those answers shift to yes. I want to dive into this just a little bit more. I want to talk about those conversations that are being had around the industry through the nonprofits and everything else. But let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about what it means to ask our community, ask the entire industry to not only, as Alana said, kill the fact that it's a buzzword, but make this something that is a concrete mission to change fundamentally now and forevermore. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, The Light Pod is brought to you by Lada, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like this podcast, and of course, a bunch of fun, short, and informative videos that talk about light, that celebrate light, that document it, and maybe even show you a cool new thing or two. Check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I dot com. And welcome back. Over the break, we got some water and we were catching up just a little bit more. And we were talking about how not only is diversity not a buzzword, and it shouldn't be, as I was kindly reminded by Alana, and I want to lean into that a little bit more. As a community, there's just a lot of work to be done. As humans, perspectives are shifting. There's an educational factor here that just plays into this entire conversation of simply understanding what's going on and how there needs to be a seat at the table for you, no matter who you are, how you think, or what 
what you believe in. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Martin, I know you had some thoughts. The seat of the table, it has to start with the education process. As you're deciding that you want to be in the profession, I think there has to be some concessions that are made at the learning level that allows you to feel like you are a part of. That's one of the things that I think we're seeing in terms of how we're finding the lack of diversity in terms of folks coming in and looking for jobs. There's a overwhelming need for the universities, the colleges to start the dialogue themselves in terms of how do they create acceptance? How do they allow for diversity so that it increases the chances of an individual who wants to be a part of the lighting design world, regardless of who they are, to put their name out there? If you only have four resumes that come instead of a a gigantic field of people, you can only choose from the four people. So how do we get that diversity to filter starting from the university level? I want to ask one question that's just a bit of a quick departure from the heart of our topic, but why is diversity important in design? And maybe I should just say, why are several different opinions that naturally comes from a diverse group of people important in design? It's actually entirely because of the different voices and different opinions. If you don't have a diversity of voices in the room, there are opportunities you are missing. You're missing opportunities by not hearing other people's perspectives. Someone is bringing something to the table from a lived experience you do not have, and you're leaving things on the table. You're leaving business on the table, you're leaving money on the table, and you're leaving design opportunity on the table by not inviting more people in the room and giving them a chance to speak. And you said it's a living experience. That's the critical factor of it, right? Whether you're straight, whether you're queer, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're white, whether you're Mexican, whether you're, you know, it doesn't matter. Everybody lives a different life. Because what we talked about earlier, there's unconscious bias. Everybody has a different experience, but that molds us all. And to Martin's point, there's a seat at the table for everyone. And we welcome as design all of that. We know that, right? Design creates these opportunities. So we have to encourage this more. Lighting is an emotion. If you're denying somebody the ability to showcase what their emotive efforts are, then you're doing the project at the surface. Yeah, I wanted to add on to that. If you don't have a diversity within your design pool, then... The projects you're doing are, as you just said, not served as well. For example, if you're doing low-income housing, usually lighting designers aren't hired for such things. There is, of course, lighting to be done. And what is done is done from a public safety standpoint. And what they often do, and I'm sure you've heard about this in conferences and such, lighting justice. If you don't have a diversity of perspectives, whatever project you're doing is not served as well because you're seeing the perspective of the cis white male or whatever instead of somebody who's closer to that demographic, whether that's a housing project, whether that's a cultural center or something else. You're going to say something? Yeah, if I could help break that down a little bit to help people understand what those things are. Martin mentioned earlier, you've done liturgical lighting projects. I practice in Southern California. There's not a lot of people who with very strong religious backgrounds, right? But in a liturgical project, you might want someone who's got a theater background. You might want someone who grew up in the Catholic Church. Maybe the person who grew up in the Catholic Church is the person you're not expecting. It might be the straight white man, or it might be the Hispanic lesbian that we mentioned earlier, right? It might be any of those people, and those people are bringing experiences that you don't even know about. And if you're not giving them a seat at the table, that project is fundamentally not as good, right? They have those experiences that I don't have. I didn't grow up Catholic. I'm not the right person, but someone else is. I think when you break it down, the diverse group of opinions is what's important. And it's diversity, as we defined earlier, comes from different backgrounds, different opportunities, but sometimes is not recognized because there's a bias. 
and whether or not you've openly been taught it or you've grown up that way, it's just something that's tough to swallow. Nobody is walking on the face of the earth without some form of bias. And to be able to unpack that is truly, I would just maybe say a lifelong mission, goal, and opportunity of humanity today, given things like this podcast, given the internet, given the opportunity to communicate this message in a more broad and should I say more efficient or or faster fashion, there's opportunities for people to listen and start to react whether or not someone that feels like they're not getting that equal seat at the table is there to challenge them. There's an opportunity for people to take the lead on this. What can our leaders, what can all of our peers in this industry do? to just start simple, to start small, but to address this and let themselves become biased to be aware of all of this. The bias really is the heart of it. And that's a big reason why I started this is because everybody has their own perspective. And the perspective that I was aware of and that I knew of among my peers, which was New York City lighting designers, was that everything was pretty hunky-dory. And when I start talking with people around the country, that's not really the case. The feeling among people in smaller markets, in rep firms, in distribution companies, further out into the heartland of America, is that is really not necessarily safe to be completely out and living your truth. And a surprisingly high number of people, and I say this anecdotally, of course, I don't have hard numbers, but a surprisingly high number of people are living essentially in the closet at least at work. I think one of the things, the best methods for having everybody have a seat at the table is something that we have been doing for for years in terms of the fact that lighting is a small industry when you think about it. It is a specific technology. It's a niche within a niche. It is a niche within a niche. And so you're already dealing with individuals who have a certain skill set. What we've learned is that you don't pigeonhole an individual from the start within a niche within a niche to you are only doing blank, you are only doing blank. So what we do, and I think this is a great lesson for everybody, is to include the people in the entire span of the project. An individual comes in, might have just started the pro, you know, just started in his career, and you allow them to be part of the meetings with the clients. You allow them to be, hey, call so-and-so and get the drawings from them or set up this and, and work together because then they start to feel their self-worth. And as they start to feel their self-worth as an individual, you're seeing how they react back and forth with others. And that growth is going to allow them in a couple years to be able to start taking other things on that you're carrying them through. I think that that's one of the most important things that we can start from the get-go is to allow a person to be a part of everything. It's not about saying you're different, so we're going to pay attention to you. It's about fundamentally saying no matter who you are, we want to give you an opportunity to be who you're gonna you grow with want us. to be. We've started doing that too. In the architecture world, we've started doing that too, getting every person in the meeting. I don't care if you graduated from school last week. I don't care if you've been in practice for 50 years. You're in every meeting. I think that that actually hits on and what you're talking about is a niche within a niche. What I do, I work on community college projects. It is kind of a niche within a niche. Of, within a niche. Of architecture. <laughs> and what we're really trying to look at, at least at our firm, and I think other firms are doing this as well, is what is your company culture? And if your company culture is about information sharing and voices at the table, then the metrics of does this person have the skills, the 10 skills that I need to fill this position? Does that person have those skills? If they don't, we're actually looking more for a cultural fit, 
right? Because the problem that you have, and this is what company leaders can do, I believe, is to stop looking so hard at metrics. It's an HR phenomenon is to look at metrics, but to understand what someone can bring to the table. Skills are taught, skills are learned, but perspectives and personality and the drive to do better work Those things are ingrained and those are the people you're looking for. You're not looking for the people with the right experience because what you're going to get are less diverse candidate pools. And why do you get less diverse candidate pools when you look at those metrics versus the people? So that happens more the higher up the ladder you go in any any business because there are less equitable opportunities for people from different backgrounds. When you're looking at metrics, what you're getting are the people who have had the very climb the ladder experience. And if you take the metrics out of that, you're stripping away folks' inability to achieve those metrics. If you have someone who is from a low-income neighborhood and found their way to lighting or found their way to architecture or construction through an unconventional path, their resume is going to look very different. Looking at those different resumes for the opportunities and what does that say about the person? They climbed this whole thing through a different path. They climbed up the window. They didn't come through the door. That tells you a lot about people. Unfortunately, what all of us do in leadership positions at large companies is we tend to look for people who will fill the niche we need and we've got today. I actually think that does a disservice to your own firm and to your own company's diversity and therefore diversity of perspectives and your work is not as good. And we're obviously talking a lot about design today as this is the profession you all practice, but would you say that this applies across the board to any business, to any company? Yeah, of course it does. Uh, This is anywhere, anybody who's looking for somebody to do a job, you're not looking for their experience and ability to turn a screw. It's the passion to do good work, to turn that screw well and get it flush with the surface and make sure that it's not going to come loose. You know, that's a very, very basic example, but I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about here. The skills, the specific skills, let's apply it. Revit, for example, okay? I was in the job market recently and every design job I looked for required Revit. Absolutely no questions required Revit. Well, I was out of the design world for five years. And before that, I was managing people who knew Revit rather than doing it myself. So I had a gap in skills and it made me unhirable. I'm still a good designer. And you can still be given an opportunity to learn that, but you need the support of somebody to say, hey, we'll take you to Amy's point for the culture fit, for the kind of person you are, for all the other intangible, untrainable and teachable skills you have. And we will enable you to do whatever else you need is. I think that's where we become the, we have to be the role models, not just in the, you know, in the lighting profession, but in in the outside world. And when I started, uh, you know, I was an architect. I had hand drafted for seven years. I didn't know a thing about I actually, when my first day at the office, I completely erased the server in my firm. Yeah, One years later, I'm Martin, still there. Don't, don't push delete. We yeah, don't know. no, I, <laughs> I, I learned that quickly when everybody said, where'd my drawings go? Every other firm that I applied to said I needed to know a specific program. And I went to my firm at KGM and they said, wait, you have experience. You you have you have passion. You have experience. You have what we need. It wasn't the technology. Because we always say, and this is something for, for everybody, you can learn a technology. You can't learn the passion. 
Exactly. You have to have that. And that's, you know, over the course of decades, you know, we've seen it go from a primarily a very slowly, but from a, a primarily segmented community in terms of race and culture to something that is more accepting. And I think we all have a lot of strides to that level that we could be proud of, but we have to keep pushing that. We have to keep showing that it is a person who has the ability to succeed that we should be looking at primarily. And that's an ability to succeed in any role. This is important beyond design because everyone brings something different. Everyone's voice brings something different. If you're a vendor and you are really trying to connect with lighting designers because that's how you sell product, looking at a different, at, at a diverse group of reps means that those people can relate to more different people in more different ways. You know, if you're on the construction side, diversity of perspectives, and we're not whatever that means, diversity of perspectives allows you to look for opportunities and how to do things better based on the difference of experience. So it's not about, I got to find a person of each different color to fill each different role. And I got to find a man and a woman and a trans man and a trans woman and a, and a gay guy and a lesbian and we're all good. It's a rainbow coalition. Like that, that's not actually completely wrong. You know, you're really looking for the diversity of perspectives so that you can do better work in whatever that means for your business. No matter the situation. No matter no, the situation. No matter who it is. Now, um, one of the things that we have to be conscious of, and I have personally seen it more and more in, in recent times, is the accident, if you will, of quantification of a specific diversity. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to say but i have been turned down with a 26 person firm from jobs because i am not a majority owner even though i am a gay man the majority of our staff is is women and minority but because we do not have the minority status we are overlooked for a person who hits the check marks. To your point, you're not checking the box, even though you actually have all the criteria. Right, We're right. focused on checking boxes. We're not focused on truly doing what we actually know we want to do, right. what matters. This has been an incredible conversation. I feel like we're just getting to it. We could talk so much more about this, but I want to thank you all for sitting with us here today, for teaching me so much. I am a privileged white male. I've grown up my entire life in those shoes with an unconscious bias. And you have taught me so much today. And for that, I wish to thank all three of you so much. If anybody has any questions, if they want to continue the conversation with you all, what's the best way they can find each one of you? This is Amy. Uh, my email is Amy Karn, K-A-R-N. So A-M-Y dot K-A-R-N at H-M-C-Architects.com. Or my Instagram is A-K-A underscore our side if you... Slide into the IG life. <laughs> Slide into the DMs. This is Martin. I'm at, uh, my email is mvan at kgmlighting.com. And I am, I didn't mention this earlier, I am the founder of NACLIC, the North American Coalition of Lighting Industry Queers. And we are at naclick.org and on Instagram at naclick. There was one point that I kept trying to squeeze in. I was just thinking about diversity being a pipeline problem. And in the broader sense, it's really a pipeline problem. And we touched on a little bit with education diversity in BIPOC and immigrant status and those segments, that's something that's a little more quantifiable and it's a little easier to identify. With LGBTQ, that's a broader thing. And 
I think there are strides being made, but it's only because there's a bit of a cultural shift. There's a broader cultural acceptance. So, for example, when I was growing up, I never knew a trans person at all. And the sources of information were mass media. It was movies, television, that sort of thing. And it was not good. It was not pretty. The media made me feel like a deviant. I was soaking in a toxic brine of misinformation coming from movies and television. Anyway, that has shifted somewhat. The culture has shifted somewhat. And where I never knew a single trans person growing up, I have a friend who's a who's a high school teacher. He has three trans kids in his classes. And I don't have the hard statistics, but there is a much higher percentage of kids these days who are LGBTQ. And it's because they know it's okay. Culture and society is telling him that it is okay. So for us, that pipeline is shifting and that's fantastic. And another thought I was having about that was there's another reason why there aren't more LGBTQ people older LGBTQ people in leadership positions, and that's because there aren't as many. Not only because of cultural acceptance, but there was a huge, huge number killed off by the AIDS epidemic, right? I think so. I just think that the uh, um, prevalence for individuals who were starting into their their careers back in in the day, whether they're you know whether they were were uh, affected by the AIDS crisis or at this point have retired, uh, it wasn't something that was at the forefront of people's minds back in back decades ago to be conscious of of, of bringing people in movements over time of of so social acceptance have, uh, you know, now is the time for the diversity in the LGBTQ community. And because of all of this, to Alana's point, there's just going to be more people like this out there. There aren't because of the way humans have lived and grown up and been raised. And for everybody who's listening, have an open mind. Understand that things are changing because they simply are. We can't correct or we can't reverse, I should say, what has already happened. But today, tomorrow, when you listen to this, you can make conscious decisions. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.